Life. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press. And if you are worshiping with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Thank you for your time and for your presence, blessing our community and church here today. And so we'll get right into it. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Romans chapter 12. And if you're able, can you please stand for the reading of God's Word? The verses and the passage will be projected on the screen as well. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. This is God's word. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, as Pastor Min has just prayed, we have finished a, a series on encounters with Jesus. And as a reminder, one of the reasons we started our ministry year with that series is because our leadership feels that God is leading us by giving us a spiritual focus for our church and lives. And that spiritual focus is being called to Christ to see the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, who he, who he is and what he's done for you, and then being called to serve for Jesus, called to Christ and called to serve. And so we've looked at how in the counters of Jesus that people of a variety of backgrounds all come to Christ, but they always leave and move in a different way when they walk away from Christ. And so for the next three weeks as we encounter Jesus, we want to look at very practically several different lists of gifts and how we can discover our gifts together and use them to build up the body of Jesus. Because the vision for new life can never fully be had unless everybody understands their gift and their role and that, that everyone is a minister in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to attempt to do in the next three weeks by looking at three different passages with three different lists of gifts with three different perspectives on the church. And so today we're looking at Romans chapter 12 verses 3 to 8. And before we get into what Paul has here for us, I want to give a little bit of a background of the gospel according to the book of Romans. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you may or may not know that some say Romans is the most glorious letter ever written. John Piper, in fact, said this is the greatest letter ever written, 16 chapters. And Paul shows himself to be the greatest theologian ever. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, he basically gives us a Grand Canyon view, a sweeping perspective on all of redemptive history, all of history and God's plan. He brings us to the depths of what punishment in hell is. He brings us up into the heights of the secret will of God. He talks about racial reconciliation, about family, about service, about identity. He brings us through the heights of theology in Romans chapter 1 through 11. And then in chapter 12 through 16, he gets very pastoral and practical. He says, in light of everything in chapters 1 through 11, this is how you ought to live, 12 through 16. In other words, you have your doctrine in the first 11 chapters, 
You have your application in the last five chapters. And do you know what's interesting that Paul in his pastoral winsomeness, in between the first 11 chapters and the last five, at the very end, do you know what it says in verse 36 of chapter 11? It says, to him be glory forever. In other words, there's praise, there's doxology, and that's the paradigm for the Christian life. Your doctrine leads you to doxology. Your doxology begins the application. And when you look at the passage that we're considering here today, in Romans chapter 12, 1 to 2, when Paul begins to talk about application, he says at one point, in light of the wonderful theology of the first 11 chapters, you have to figure out what God's will is for your life. Do you know what God's will is for your life? Do you know? People ask me that all the time. I don't know what God's will is for my life. Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Where should I go to school? Where should I move? What is God's will for my life? Well, Paul gives a very clear answer here because when he says, discern the will of God for you, he gives you a black and white answer in verses 3 to 8, which is our passage. Do you know what the will of God is for you? To serve the church of Jesus Christ. So every one of you who's struggling with the will of God is unclear. It's not clear. It's very clear here. What is the will of God for your life? Well, not everything, not consummately, but a fundamental practical application of God's will for your life. If he wants you to discern it, he's saying, I'm going to give you the answer in verses 3 to 8. Serve the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to consider here today. So let's look at this. How do you serve the church of Jesus Christ? Well, the gospel will shape how you think about service in church, and there are three things that Paul outlines for us in our passage. First, he says, as you think about serving, think about your identity of yourself individually. Think about yourself. Secondly, think about your community. And then thirdly, think about how to serve that community. In fact, the main point of the entire passage is in verse 3, where Paul says, sober think yourself. How do you sober think yourself? Know your identity, know your community, know your service. So we're just going to briefly run through that quickly. Let's look at the first one. Let's think about identity, our self-worth. And in verse 3, let me read that entire verse. It says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think of yourself properly. Now, Paul is a great theologian here. And if you want a little bit of a grammatical lesson in Greek, they don't oftentimes just say, uh, you know, when they emphasize something, they don't write it in a way that you could translate it. Think seriously. I really want you to think seriously about this. In fact, to have emphasis, the way that Paul does it, he doesn't have this very serious thought. He doesn't have those kind of words. He just repeats the word over and over again. And that one word that he has there for us is the word think. That's how strong he wants to emphasize your ability to understand yourself. The word think is there four times. It doesn't come out in English, but it's there in the Greek, and it's basically saying the root word four times in that verse, think, 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 think. That's the emphasis of this passage. Now, the word think there for us modern people, we oftentimes assume that it means an intellectual process, but it's much deeper there. That word there, think, is not just the ability to calculate, it's a worldview to say, think about yourself, your mission in life, your identity, a trajectory of where your life is going. That's the worldview, to think about all of reality as it is. Think about your education and the trajectory that it goes. Think about marriage and the path that it will lead. It's much deeper than just thinking about 
problem-solving. It's a worldview, a value system of your entire life. And he says it four times to think according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason he does this is because Paul, in the church at Rome, in the churches at Rome, is very concerned about people who overthink themselves, who are prideful, self-absorbed, self-concentrated. Now, one way to translate verse 3 is this way. I say to everyone among you, not to high-think yourself, to up-think yourself, don't overthink yourself, but to wise-think yourself. That's what he's saying. In other words, don't super-think yourself, but sober-think yourself. Friends, let's be honest with this, about this. Do you, I'll just tell you, a lot of us like to super-think ourselves. We over-inflate our view of ourselves because of our accomplishments, our our resume, our LinkedIn account, our abilities, our physical looks. There's all kinds of criteria that we put into our value system that we super think ourselves. We're such great people. We're so wonderful. We're so moral. We're so righteous. We have everything right. And Paul is saying, be careful there. Don't overthink. Don't upthink. Don't super think yourself. But he's saying in the gospel of Jesus, sober think. Do you know what sober means? Very simple. Sober means clear. Think clearly about yourself. And friends, don't you want an honest assessment of yourself? You ever go to like those carnivals or you go into a mirror that is a squiggly mirror and you look at yourself and it distorts your image, makes you wide on the feet and your head is really skinny and it's just a distorted view? That's a metaphor for all of us because sin has distorted our view of ourselves. Paul is concerned about overinflating ourselves, but I also think sin distorts it in the negative way where you think bad about yourself. And Paul is saying, well, you don't want to sway to one side or the other. Don't superthink yourself. Don't overinflate your head, but also don't deflate your head and think I'm a horrible person and no one can love me. Even God can't really redeem or save me. Clearly think about yourself. Wisely think about yourself. And this is the way that you do it. He says, according to the measure of faith that God has given you, do you do that? The measure that God has given you? Let me ask you just a very simple question. How do you determine your self-worth? What measuring cup do you use? What scale do you value your importance? What ruler are you measuring your growth and your height? What standard are you using to measure yourself? Because Paul is saying if you use any other standard besides the one I give you, you have a people-pleasing, man-centered standard. You can compare each your standard could be money. You know, you make a lot of money, but somebody makes a little bit more. Your standard could be physical attraction. You're pretty handsome, pretty attractive, but somebody's a little bit more attractive than you. It could be possessions and materialism. You have a pretty decent house and car, but someone got the upper model than you did. What is the standard or measuring cup by which you compare yourself or your self-identity? And sin causes us to do this all the time. That's the standard that we live. See, this isn't anything new, friends. The French philosopher Rousseau, in the 18th century, he came up with this concept called self-love. And it's the same thing that you and I do here today where we compare our, our, each other by a standard that's man-made to determine a self-worth. But what Rousseau even said back in the 18th century, he says, as he observed his culture, that human beings derive our self-esteem, our value, on the opinion of others. And he considered it unnatural, unhealthy, he believed it was arbitrary social comparison, and it led people to wasting their lives because they had no identity of their own. He says it led to restlessness and dissatisfaction, or it led to criticism and pride, because the standard of 
thinking about yourself wasn't the gospel of Jesus, it was some other measuring cup that was your own value system. In other words, you have enough in life, someone has more, and you feel a little bit envious or jealous. You think you're good enough in life, but someone's a little bit better, and you feel a little bit down on yourself. Or it works the other way. You look over to the person on the left, you have more than the person on that left. You are more gifted than the person on your left. You're more attractive, more talented, and you oscillate back and forth between insecurity and overconfidence. Paul is saying that's human nature. Rousseau is saying the same thing. It's about deriving your identity by a self-made measuring cup. Paul is saying don't superthink yourself, soberthink yourself. See, this isn't just 18th century. This is all of humanity. In the 2016 article in the New York Times, there's a study that's saying narcissism is on the rise. This self-loved, inflated view of yourself. And the article went on to say the self-esteem movement in the 1980s, we build up children's self-esteem and confidence through frequent praise. If you just praise your child all the time, then they'll have an inflated view of themselves. A strong emphasis to achieve, to build a resume, to distinguish yourself from everyone else through extroverted ideals. See, everyone throughout the history of humanity from 18th century to the New York Times 2016 till today, Paul knows that the universal challenge for understanding identity is always comparing ourselves to one another. And that's why he says, don't superthink yourself. Clearly think about yourself. How do you clearly think about yourself? Verse 3, according to the measure that God has given you, the perfect man in Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus. The standard that says you're a sinner, but by the work of Jesus, you're cleansed, you're perfect, you're made whole and holy in my son. It doesn't mean that accomplishments and work and popularity and charisma, it doesn't say that doesn't matter. It matters, it's just not ultimate. It's good to have certain qualities, but it's not supposed to be the basis of your identity. It's not the measuring standard of your life and value because it's according to the measure of faith that God has given you. So you have to live out of your identity in Jesus. Live out of the worth that Jesus has given to you then you could be humble and clear. You won't be prideful, you won't be insecure, you won't be critical, you won't be self-detrimental because the standard of comparison is not one another, but it's in Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our second point. If you could clearly think about yourself as an individual, Paul goes on and says, you also have to think clearly about yourself in community. Read with me verses four to five. Verses 4 to 5 says this, <clears throat> For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in body, one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. So he's highlighting this unity, he's highlighting this diversity. He's highlighting community, and he's highlighting individuality. And what the Christian doctrine of the gospel says is that once you follow Jesus, you follow Jesus together. The verse there is really interesting, especially in verse 5. He says, you are members one another. In other words, we own each other. It means that your identity in some ways is built up in somebody else. Not in people pleasing and fear of man, but in the sense that we are building each other up because we own each other, we love each other, we are dependent upon each other. 
You need somebody in this room. Somebody else needs you in this room. And this is a hard-hitting verse. Do you know why? Because we all know because of sin, all our relationships and community are distorted. It's a hassle. It takes much work. We expose ourselves. We make ourselves vulnerable, and someone takes advantage of that. We disrespect people. We judge each other's parenting styles and money-spending styles and methodologies. We, all, we have all kinds of difficulty in marriage. We compare each other all the time. So community... It's really jacked up because of this thing called sin. But nevertheless, Paul says, if you want to sober think yourself, understand the importance of community because you're members of one another. You own each other. Your identity is bound up with one another into eternity. You see, friends, let me make it practical for you. Think about it this way. If you live by yourself, you will have a less clear understanding of yourself versus living in community. Because it's just simple. How do you know that you're a nice person unless there's a community of people that you're nice to? How do you know that you're not selfish unless you could give your stuff away to the people around you? How do you know that you're not cantankerous or that you're abrasive in your speech and your words? How do you know that you're gentle in your words and that you're life-giving? You can only figure that out in the context of community. You can only discover this. Do you know why? Even though we don't live for people's approval, God has set people in your life to be your spiritual eyes into the blind spots that you have. Because every one of you, including me, have blind spots about our character, the way we think about ourselves and the world, and you'll never get clarity on those blind spots unless you embrace the fact that we are called to live members one of another. In this community that's messy and broken, but in the midst of this, God is shaping us and changing us and transforming us because you'll never discover yourself. You'll never have clarity about yourself unless you live in true, authentic, genuine, vulnerable community to expose your heart out there and have the risk to say, I'm going to give something of my heart and run the risk that someone's going to mangle that. And believe me, I've done it. I felt my heart's been mangled in community. I felt betrayed. That's just life. But the gospel can cover all of this because he uses a simple analogy, you are one body. And unless the body parts are connected to the body, you'll never be the body part. A hand can only be a hand if it's connected to the arm. A foot can only make the body walk if it's connected to the leg. Or you can think about it this way. Every one of you is a musical note in the symphony of God's grace. Individual notes strung together in a harmony that sings the praises of God. Every one of you is a note in this music of God's church that is needed. And you can never make music by yourself. Maybe one note, but that's flat. You need to be strung together in the other notes in this church so then you can make a melody to the Lord. That's community. I've said this before. I just love the quote, though. All of us could be a symphony of Beethoven. And I don't know about classical music, but one pastor said Beethoven is a class of his own. And the way he described Beethoven's music is that every note that followed the preceding note was a perfect note. And that's what Paul is saying in the community. Every note that's sitting to the left of the other person's note in this church is the perfect note in the gospel of Jesus. You need each other. Community is much deeper than what the world tells us. Now, let me give a couple of thoughts about 
our culture and community today before we go to our gifts. I read this book about community, and it's talking about the impact of technology upon our community. It's written by this guy called Tim Challies, and it, the book that he wrote is called The Next Step. Many of us know we live in an individualistic society, but he's trying to get across and convey the effects of technology on our community and our connectedness. And this is what he says, one part of it. In an instant message culture, many of us feel disconnected. We wonder if our growing reliance on technology is actually detrimental to our souls. And don't get me wrong, he's very smart. He says technology and social media and all of this is really good. Technology demonstrates humanity's creativity, our artistry, our mastery, our industrious productivity. Technology is excellent. God gives it to us as a gift. The Bible affirms that technology is good. But what he's trying to say is that even in the creative artistry of technology, face-to-face -face communication, in-person communication, is far superior than other forms of communication and community. In our age of social media, let's consider the context that we're in. That word media, friends, just makes a vocabulary. It means there's a medium. Between two people, there's a media to convey and to build a bridge and community. So for us, it could be Facebook, if you're a baby boomer, Gen, Gen X. But if you're younger, it's Snapchat, it's Instagram. So you have a media that mediates our community. And what it's telling us here is that the most raw and authentic community and communication is going to be in person. Because when God created Adam and Eve, there was no media. It was just before the face of God and Adam and Eve together and in nature. Social media is what stands between our socializing in an Instagram, Snapchat culture. They're the go-between in our interactions. So Charlie says, never before in human history have people lived their lives so thoroughly and consistently mediated as it is today. And it's not all bad. He's just saying, recognize it's a lesser form of community and connectedness. It's meant to be supplemental, not fundamental. It's not a replacement for face-to-face -face community and communication. It's to supplement it in our creative artistry made in the image of God. Because we were created members of one another, direct face-to-face -face unmediated community. That's why when a boy writes a love letter to his girlfriend, he doesn't say, I long to write letters to you forever. The boy says to his loved one, I long to be with you. Because things like facial expression and body language, hand motions, tone of voice are all lost on social media. Even when we communicate much quicker with social media, much further, it comes at a price of real presence. The voice extends, the person recedes. Because immediate communication involves less of us, requires less of us, delivers less of us. That's why we have to hear Paul really clearly. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. We are members of one another. We are connected to each other. Because at the end of the day, what Paul is saying is that we don't need a media to create community. We need a mediator, Jesus Christ, our high priest, who says everyone is different, but I'll die for you. My spirit dwells within you. I'll bring you new life and resurrection. And in my life, death, and resurrection, you have a mediator that allows for real gospel, other-centered loving, gracious community that's authentic and real and that give you the power to truly be who you are. 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our union with Jesus that transcends every other difference in this world. Did you know that on short-term mission trips, if you go across halfway across the world and somebody who you just met accepts the gospel genuinely and authentically, that person in some level, you will have a closer community and unity in eternity than your closest family member who rejects Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's what Paul's trying to say. You want to wise think yourself? Measure yourself individually against Jesus. Sober think yourself in community in the importance of being members of one another. And this leads us quickly to our last point. Paul then says, how do we get there? How do we build up this vision of the church? And he says in verse 6, use your gifts. Verse 6 says this, having gifts that defer according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He's describing this community in which everyone has a gift, and everyone has a skill, and everyone has a talent, and everyone has something that you are gifted to by Jesus, and the will of God, you remember, what is the will of God? Use your gift to serve the church. People ask me oftentimes, how do I know what God wants me to do in the church? How do I know what God's will is to serve? It's really simple. Know your gift. If there's a need in the church, use your gift to fill that need. Really simple. You don't make it complicated. Oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to work with that person. I don't know if I'm good at this. That's too self-centric. If you want a very clear answer, you see a need in the church, God has gifted you with that to fill that need, then you fill the need. That's all you need to know. You know, so if you look at, there's a handout that we gave you. I'm going to give you the first part. Every member of ministry, you want to know the needs of the church, read this. And I encourage you, if you're not serving anywhere, reach out to the ministry director or staff and just email them. You're not committed. Just be open to exploring and discovering what are the specific needs. Can I match that with the gift that Jesus has given me? So consider this email the ministry director or the pastor, because there's a need in this church that you may be called to fill because God has gifted you to meet that need. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. Maybe we can have an honest conversation about this. You, there's the needs right there. Let me talk about how do you discern what your gift is? How do you figure that out? The most important phrase in this entire passage, or rather the hardest one in verse 3, is verse 3, the measure of faith. You know, that's a standard, but I think there's something else that could be applied in gifts. He's saying, when you use your gift, use it in the measure of your faith. What does that mean, the measure of your faith? It means this, when you use your gift, use it in the range or the sphere or the limits of your gift, because you have a gift, but it's limited. There's a range, and when you try to use your gift outside of that range, then things get really messed up in the church. So you have to use your gift in the range of your gift. And so the analogy I always used in the past was this. Think about the orchestra. If God has gifted you to be the first chair violinist, don't be humble and say, oh, I don't know how to play violin. You know, I don't want to. No, if God has gifted you to be the first chair violinist and the orchestra of God's church needs a violinist, you play the first chair violinist. But if you're not skilled to be a first chair violinist and you're the second chair violinist, use your gift to be the second chair in the limits and the range of the second chair. Don't try to be the first chair. That's where envy and power struggles happen. If you're called to be the second chair violinist, use that in the range and limits. Now, I'll share this in a personal story. When I was in college, I wanted to be a praise leader. I had a guitar. 
I tried really hard to become a praise leader. I thought God has gifted me. I'm going to be the next Shane and Shane. I'm going to be the next Chris Tomlin. Actually, back when I was in college, it was this guy, Brian Dorkson. I'm going to be the next Vineyard praise leader. But then I realized I didn't have any range to my musical gift. I couldn't sing, can't hold a rhythm, had no tempo. One of my youth students later on in life, when I was leading praise for a youth group, this kid who was in the orchestra said, Pastor Will, you have no tempo, you have no rhythm, and if you don't have that, it's not called music. And then I knew I had no limits or the range. So what did I end up doing oftentimes when I served in praise ministry? I would do the transparency on the overhead projector. And then you can't think about it this way. You can't say, I have a limited gift. Anybody could do the transparency on the overhead projector. No, God has gifted you to do that, to fill the need. So you have to use it in the range or the limits of where your skill is. The praise leader may not want to do the overhead projector. The overhead projectionist, is that's a praise, shouldn't try to be the praise leader. It's the same thing in all of life. That's why Paul goes into all kinds of different gifts here. And that's why when you read this, he says all kinds of gift, different gifts that you can use. And you have to use it in the limits and the range. So if you can prophesy, use your prophecy in proportion to your faith. You're clear at conveying biblical truth. If you're good at serving, then serve in the, what you're doing as a service. And by the way, that word serving... teaching or education in youth. If you're good at giving money away, do it in generosity. And by the way, that word generosity doesn't mean give a lot. It means give with a single-minded focus. I could do a whole seminar on this. When you give your money away, in other words, it's saying give it without any strings attached. It's not saying give a lot of money away. It's saying give with a single-minded focus that you don't want anything back because, believe me, people will throw their money around, but there's expectations with the donations that they give. They want to control something. They want access to people. But he's saying, don't do that. If you're gifted in generosity and giving, give a lot, but give single-mindedly. The one who leads, do it with passion. The one who does acts of mercy, do it cheerfully, like Deacon Danny leading our City Lights ministry. Know your gifts and use it in the sphere or the range of your gifts. Because all the gifts are meant to exist together. If you're the first chair violinist, be the first chair. If you're the overhead projectionist, be the overhead projector. If you're the one that's called to be a deacon, be a deacon. If you're someone who's called to teach, sign up for New Life Youth. If someone's called to lead because they're good at project management and organizing events, lead people with gentleness and winsomeness and the ability to organize events. If you're great at giving things away, and literally people will tell me, and I, I embrace this, they're like, Pastor Will, the only thing I'm good at is making money. I'm going to give it away to missions. I'm going to give it away to mercy ministry. Do it with a single-minded heart without any strings attached. Use your gift Find the need and use it in the measure of faith, the range and the sphere of your faith. Then and only then, our church will begin to thrive and run and will reach our vision to impacting Orange County by making disciples that are gospel-centered, compassionate, and missions-minded. Let me end on this. In an article in The Atlantic, it was talking about 
the school system, which was broken and poor, and they wanted to do something for the arts, especially band and orchestra. So what they decided to do is that they had a citywide event, a fundraising campaign, and they composed this piece called Symphony for a Broken Orchestra. Well, you have middle school and high school students playing in this broken orchestra using broken instruments that needed repair alongside the greatest professional musicians in the tri-state area. Symphony for Broken Orchestra, a ragtag orchestra in the work of Temple Contemporary, an adjunct of the Tyler School of Arts. So you can imagine the scene and the, the campaign to raise money to repair instruments and buy new instruments and fund music teachers because you have a broken orchestra with all these instruments that had broken strings and were out of tune and the wind instruments had to have new mouthpieces and you have professionals but you also have middle school students because they're in the limits of their faith and they're all singing or they're all playing this piece called the Symphony for the Broken Orchestra. And do you know what? On this side of glory, sinners like you and me, that's who we are. We're a symphony of a broken orchestra, broken people struggling along in life. But by God's grace, he gives us his son, Jesus, to shape us, change us, and grow us so that he'll heal us. So there'll continually be an orchestra that sings and serves to the music and the melody of God's grace given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do. That's what he's given us. That's what he's encouraging us. You want to know the will of God? Pick up your instrument, use it in the realm of your faith, and find the need in this orchestra called New Life, New Life Presbyterian Church. And then we can begin to make music together as we pursue the vision of God's glory for us. Friends, let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you so much, Lord God, that although we're broken and that although we're out of tune, and that although we need so much grace from your help, we pray that you give us the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we could be healed and whole and made anew and transformed and that we could live in the midst of community that's difficult and hard, but we will do this because that is your will. And you give us the grace and the joy in our hearts to do this. We love you with all our hearts, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you look in the bulletin, we have a wonderful occasion to